Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll be focusing on the last few verses of, of Matthew 9. And if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the, the big bold numbers are the chapter numbers. The tiny little, uh, the tiny little numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, and if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find this text on page 764 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 9, page 764. We'll be right at the end of chapter 9 this morning. And this morning, we're going to continue our study through the account of the good news of Jesus as recorded by his friend and student, Matthew the Apostle. Matthew uh, was an eyewitness, he was a, a friend and a follower of Jesus. And under the guidance of God, the Holy Spirit, he recorded this account for us that has been come to, has come to, that comes to us, as we call it, the gospel of Matthew, which is really the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded by Matthew. And Matthew has been showing us in this part of his account that Jesus has come in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So the ancient prophets who spoke long before Jesus ever was born prophesied and predicted one who would come as a son of Abraham, who would bring blessing to the nations. They promised that uh, God, God spoke to David and promised him that there would come a king of his offspring, whose kingdom would know no end, who would reign forever. And as Matthew begins his gospel, how does he introduce Jesus to us? He introduces him to us with a genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Matthew has been showing us that Jesus has the right credentials to be this promised one, this chosen one, God's promised king and deliverer that the world history up to this point has been waiting for. He's been showing us also that Jesus has the power to be such a savior, such a deliverer. I mean, here recently in this chapter eight and nine, Matthew's been showing us some of the miracles that Jesus did, curing incurable diseases, stilling storms with a word, raising the dead, casting out demons with a word. There was no illness. There was no force of nature. There was no force of the supernatural realm that could stand up to the power of this man. And of course, that is because this man was no mere man. This one was God in the flesh. As Matthew introduced him to us in chapter one, that, that his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And that he would come and save his people from their sin. Well, the, the question, of course, on our minds is as we see that he has the right credentials and that he has the power to be this savior. Does he have the heart to be this savior? Is he willing? Is he willing to be the savior of sinners? To be the rescuer of mankind? To solve the world's greatest problems. And we see here this morning in our passage this morning that Jesus does have the heart of a savior. He has the pity, the compassion 
necessary to play this role, this crucial role. So look with me at verse 35 of chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We'll stop there. We'll take these verses this morning in three main movements. So if you're taking notes, these will be the three main points this morning. First, point number one will be seeing. Seeing, Jesus saw the crowds. Point number two will be feeling. He had compassion for them. And then point number three will be praying. He instructed his disciples to pray. So first of all, point number one, seeing. Jesus saw the crowds. Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus saw them. Now, sheep are not able, self-sufficient creatures that can just look out for themselves in the wild. Sheep are rather defenseless. If they escape from, their, from the fence and they're wandering through the woods, it's probably not going to turn out well for them. They need someone to take care of them. And in this, at this time, uh, sheep farming was relatively common, and uh, shepherds would be a pretty common sight, looking out for their flocks on the, on the hillsides of, of the Palestinian region there. So a shepherd would have been understood to be a necessity, and sheep without a shepherd, that's a bad situation. They're, they're helpless. Now, the Old Testament, the ancient scriptures of the, of the people of, of Israel had used imagery of sheep without a shepherd to describe the, the situation that humanity found itself in. As we read last week, Ezekiel 34, and God had some hard words for the princes of Israel because instead of being good shepherds and looking out for the, for the flock, meaning the, the people there, Instead of looking out for the people, they were taking advantage of the people. They were, they were devouring them, as it were. They resembled more wolves than good shepherds. The Pharisees and scribes, the religious teachers of Jesus' day, they should have shepherded and guided the people of God in God's truth with, with love and patience. But instead, they had little compassion for the people, for the common people of the land. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce notes that the Pharisees were burdening people with legalistic niceties instead of seeking them out and wooing them with the gospel of God's grace. They were encumbering the people with laws about the Sabbath, with laws about fasts and clothing and tithes, and they looked down on the people. They regarded them as hardly worthy of their attention even as chaff to be destroyed. 
They called them the people of the land. By contrast, Jesus saw them as as helpless sheep, as a harvest to be gathered in. Jesus had eyes to see with compassion. Church, do we, do we have eyes to see the lost? You who have, who have been saved and had your sins forgiven by the precious grace of God, who've been found by the good shepherd, do you see those around you who are still struggling through life without the good shepherd, who are still in danger for their very souls? Do you see the crowds? Do you recognize the pain, the lostness, the hopelessness that is all around us, even this morning, right here in Springdale, Arkansas? No, our our enemy, Satan, does not want us to see. He wants us to be so distracted with with sports and hobbies and TV and, and vacations and career He wants us to fill our schedules so full and be constantly on the move from place to place that we don't have time to lift up our eyes and to look and to see those who are in pain around us, those who are sinking down into the pit of destruction without hope, without God, without eternal life, without a comforter for their soul and a shepherd for their soul. He doesn't want us to see them. Satan may may not always tempt us to do outright sinful things as long as he can keep us distracted with even good things, even honest uh, and, and perfectly fine, innocent pleasures. As long as he can keep us so distracted with those things that we're not about loving our neighbor, that we're not out actively going and taking the invincible hope of the gospel to those around us. If he can keep us distracted, he will be more than content. There's a scene from an old World War II film uh, entitled The The Sands of Iwo Jima. And in this movie, there's a a couple of U.S. Marines, and they're trying to hold off a platoon of of Japanese troops that are advancing on the, the U.S. camp. They're trying to hold them off long enough to where the rest of the troops can get in position. And these two Marines, they're... They're in this little foxhole, firing away, trying to, you know, shoot enough shots to where the Japanese think that there's like a whole, a whole force of U.S. Marines there holding them off, trying to keep them pinned down. But there's a problem. After a little bit, they start running out of ammunition. So one of the Marines offers to sneak back to camp real quick, radio for help, get more bullets, and come back until until more uh, help can arrive. And so he does. He goes back to camp. You know, he gets a few more packs of bullets and he calls in for help. And on, as he's on his way out of the camp to, to bring the necessary rounds of ammo to his buddy, he smells some coffee. And boy, does it smell good. He, he smells the coffee and he decides to stop just for a moment to get a cup. I mean, after all, what's a few minutes going to hurt? I'll just grab a cup real quick, take a few sips, and, and he sits down with this cup of coffee, and, and for a moment, he forgets that he's in a war, and he relaxes by the fire. He can feel the life returning to his fatigued body, 
you know, it's, it's like he's back at home on a peaceful summer morning before work, sipping coffee on the front porch. But then he remembers, you know, I better get going. My buddy's still out there. I need to get this ammo back to him. I know, I'll bring him some coffee too. I'm sure he, he would love some, some caffeine. But as he, as he makes his way back and as he arrives at the foxhole, he realizes that it's too late. Those few minutes by the fireside drinking coffee had cost the life of his fellow Marine. He'd run out of ammo and there by himself in the foxhole with no more bullets, desperately waiting on his friend to return. Um, and the, the Japanese had gotten to him first. Now, there would be nothing wrong with a cup of coffee ordinarily. There are many things, many good things in life that are, that are fine in their proper place and time. But brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not forget that we are in a war. We are in a spiritual conflict. Let us not forget that there are souls that are perishing each and every day around us. Let's not become so distracted by by even good things, even permissible things, so that we no longer see the crowds, that we forget our mission. There's a proper place for rest and recreation in moderation, but it mustn't be our goal each week. If if our goal each week is to just get through the work week so we can get to the weekend so that we can play, brothers and sisters, we've forgotten our mission. The goal of life is not to have as many, as many days on the lake and as many days on the beach as possible and play as many rounds of golf as possible. That's not the goal. There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when we will enter our heavenly rest. And believe you me, it will more than make up for any weekends of fun that we've lost here below. But right now, while we're in this war zone world, we rest when we must. We rest when we must in order to return to the fight with renewed strength, in order to return to those who are perishing each day without hope, without God in the world, to return to those who are hurting and who are, who are dying and who need love, who need the love of Christ. So brothers and sisters, I want to I just remind you this morning of our mission. And this is a reminder to myself. It's so easy to smell the coffee and just get distracted and kind of forget to get caught up in in perfectly innocent entertainments and and things in this world and and forget the pain, the suffering that is all around us. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. So as a church, let's, let's remind one another, are we seeing the crowds? Are we seeing them? Jesus saw them. But secondly, point number two, Jesus didn't just see them. He felt. He he saw and he felt. When he saw the crowds, it says he had compassion for them. Now, what does this word compassion mean? The word translated from the Greek here as as compassion is is a strongly emotional Greek verb that speaks of a warm, compassionate response to need. And the word means to to be deeply moved, to be affected deeply in one's inner being, literally in the gut. The the metaphor, the underlying metaphor in the Greek 
it, it spoke to somebody's guts. Like that's how, that's how deeply within this feeling was felt. This was not some surface level, shallow, uh, passing feeling. The language scholars point out that no single English term does justice to the Greek here. Compassion, pity, sympathy, they all convey part of the, the meaning of this word. But perhaps the, the idiom, his heart went out. Perhaps that represents more fully the emotional force of the underlying metaphor here of a, a, of a gut response. His heart went out to the crowds. Jesus felt compassion for them. The way these crowds are described by Matthew as, as harassed and helpless, what does that imply? Well, that implies that, that they're victims in a sense. They've, they've been hurt. Um, the, the Greek words, they're kind of, the image that, that it gives us is sheep being wounded, torn, either by hostile animals or, or having wandered through the thorn bushes, defenseless, cast down, weary, without help, without hope, sheep without a shepherd. It's a pitiful image. That's the way these crowds are described. And the description calls the reader to feel sorrow and sympathy for them. That's how Jesus felt towards these crowds, as if he were, as if he were a good shepherd coming upon his, his dear flock after they had wandered away and seeing them wounded, lying there in the dirt, covered in, in dirt and blood, and going to them and picking up that little lamb and, and holding it in his arms, carrying it back to camp. That's, that's kind of the, the feeling that is being expressed here. That's how Jesus saw these crowds. Friends, these crowds. As, he, as Jesus looked out upon these crowds, something is striking. He probably would have recognized certain faces there, the same faces that he would later see as he stood before the crowds, beaten, mocked, and as they cried out for him to be crucified. As we move on in Matthew we will see the crowds again. And this time Jesus will stand before them. And though he had had compassion on the crowds, they would have no compassion for him. Matthew 27 says that as Pilate, who was the Roman governor, he, he said to them, to the crowd, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. In fact, the, the crowd that had celebrated Jesus with shouts of joy just days before, as he had entered Jerusalem, who had said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This crowd had, had become disappointed that Jesus was not the political deliverer that they were looking for, that he wasn't going to take over in Jerusalem and lead a rebellion against Rome. And when he didn't fit their agenda, they turned on him so violently, they wanted nothing less than the worst execution possible. 
the slow and painful death of the cross. And even the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, hesitated. And when he did, the crowd was so bloodthirsty that they started rioting. Matthew 27, 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he ended up going along with them. Did Jesus not know what was in the hearts of these people? Did Jesus not know what they were capable of? Had he misjudged them as perhaps more deserving than than they really were? Is that why he had compassion on them? No. Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what these crowds were capable of. He knew that they would turn on him. John 2.25 says this of Jesus. He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew they had murder in their hearts. He knew that they were following him just for the benefits that they could get, the free food, the healings. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He saw the crowds. He knew them. And yet Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He saw them and he knew them. And in our fallen condition, as we're born into this world, friends, what we need to recognize is we're not too much different than these crowds. We often treat God as a means to an end. As long as God will will help me accomplish my life goals, as long as as I can fit him in and, and he doesn't mess with my plans too much, as long as he's there to kind of encourage me when I need him, as long as he helps me get the job promotion, then I'll, I'll come to church, then I'll worship him. But if God makes demands of me, I'm not going to worship a God like that. That's not my God. The God I worship is not like that. We are unwilling to to recognize him and to worship him for who he is. Just like these crowds were unwilling to worship Jesus for who he was. And we turn Jesus in for a God of our own making. And the Bible calls that idolatry. God hates that. That's, That's a capital offense. That's cosmic treason against the king of the universe. That we who... God made, we who are creatures of God, that he owns, that he made to worship him, that we would treat him like trash when he doesn't do what we want, that we would try to take his place and be our own gods and do things the way we want them. This, this, this is unacceptable to God. And this means that we, as the Bible says, we are sinners we have broken God's law. We're, we're part of the rebellion that Satan has, has started against God. We've all chosen self and sin over loving and treasuring and worshiping God as he deserves to be worshiped. That's the way those crowds were. That's the way, friends, we are by nature. Listen to Romans 3. This is God's assessment of the human race, apart from his intervention, mind you. Romans 3 says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. How many of us have never told a lie? How many of us have kept our mouths free of ever speaking a hurtful word? Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen, the fact that these crowds were harassed and helpless, it doesn't mean that they were innocent. It doesn't mean that they were basically good people. The, the picture that the Bible gives us of humanity is that, that all of us, to varying degrees, are both oppressed, are both victims, and we are also at the same time, each one of us, lawbreakers. In God's court, each one of us are criminals. We have broken his law. We have transgressed. James 2 says that if we keep the whole law but offend in one point, we are guilty of it all. We have, we have broken the law of God. And we, we try to downplay that. We say, well, nobody's perfect. But that's God's standard. That's per- his perfection is the standard by which he's going to judge us on the last day. And before his eyes, we are sinners. Before Jesus' eyes, these crowds were sinners. He knew what was in man. He knew. Listen, the fact that Jesus had compassion on sinners, on these people, doesn't mean that they're not bad. Doesn't mean that they're not sinful people. And he has compassion for bad people like us. And the fact that they're, they're bad or that they're sinners or that they've, they've broken God's law doesn't mean, it doesn't exclude them from Christ's compassion. Listen, if, if Jesus only had compassion on good people, there'd be no hope for any of us. There'd be no hope for any of us. Why is this important? It's important because we must remember that our only hope for salvation is that Jesus had compassion on, on bad people, on sinners, on lawbreakers. We don't come to God and with the attitude of, of God, I've only... I've only done a few bad things. And we must come to him recognizing our guilt, not making excuses for it, but confessing it to him and asking for his mercy, looking for his compassion and taking hope in the fact that he has compassion on bad people. These same crowds we find later in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and they're standing before Peter and the apostles and, and here's what Peter says to them. He, he calls them out for putting Jesus to death. He says, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was being honest with them. <laughs> he was being truthful and yet merciful at the same time. He wasn't saying that just to make them feel bad. He was diagnosing a problem so that they could go to the great physician and find the cure so that they could experience God's compassion. Even though they'd been complicit in the murder of the very son of God, many of those very people, those very crowds, those fickle crowds, those 
those rioting mobs that called for Jesus to be crucified, they will be with him forever in heaven. They will be with Christ. They have been adopted into his family. These same people were some of the first Christians in the early church. Listen, that tells you something about God's grace. That tells you something of the power of the compassion of Christ. Though God obviously didn't approve of their sin and their wickedness, he still had compassion for them. He still loved them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait till we get our acts together to show us mercy and love. He comes to us and meets us in our filth, in our rebellion, in our sin. He comes to us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us when we were most unlovable. This is the only way that any of us are saved from punishment that is due to our sin. Isaiah 53 says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we have not lived. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. And then he died as a substitute for sinners in our place, taking on himself the punishment that we deserved. So that all those who come to him, not making excuses, but saying, Lord, I need mercy. I need compassion. Will you forgive me? Will you save me? They will be welcomed. They will be saved. They will be saved. So my my question to you this morning is, do you believe? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed in the one who lived the life that you could never live, who died the death that you deserve to die, but, but won't have to die and won't have to suffer under God's judgment if you trust him? Do you trust in the one who has risen from the dead and who is coming back to judge the world in righteousness? Do you trust in the one who has had compassion like no other? If you have any questions about this, please feel free to come and talk to me after the service. Grab that book on the, in, the, in the foyer in there that's called What is the Gospel? Uh, it, it explains this very clearly. We're running out of time, so let me move along to my last point here, and I'll just cover it briefly. Jesus saw the crowds. He felt compassion for the crowds. And lastly, he instructed his disciples to pray. Seeing and feeling led to praying. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest here in this context obviously refers to the many people, the crowds who needed to be brought in. Imagine a a whole field of wheat that's ready to be harvested. And the good weather is only going to last so long. Back in these days, they didn't have high-tech harvesters. It all had to be gathered by hand with a long, uh, sharp uh, knife called a sickle. And and workers would have to go through the wheat field by hand and cut the wheat and gather it together in bundles. It, It was a big job. And imagine if it was just you and one other guy and there's like 50 acres to harvest. (laughs) It's time to call in help. And this is what Jesus calls his 
followers to do. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. Now, our first response would seeing seeing that situation would probably be, hey, let's let's go train some more. Let's let's go sharpen some more sickles. You know, let's let's strategize. Let's let's go to the coffee shop and and get our notebooks and our laptops out and start planning and strategizing for how we can reach the reach the lost and and go to the ends of the earth. And those things are fine and good. But in the face of urgent need, Jesus instructed his followers to start by praying. And we, church, seeing the needs around us, seeing the needs that we prayed for just moments ago, we must start by praying. Because unless the Lord is in the work, it's all vain and useless. Unless God is with us, all of our efforts won't matter a hill of beans. One pastor points out that what matters here is not just numbers of workers. If we look closely at this verse, we see it's also important that the workers are the right kind. They must be people sent by God, not people who are self-appointed, because the harvest is God's harvest and God is its Lord. So in closing, brothers and sisters, do we see the crowds? Do we see them? Are we seeing them as Christ does? Not just pointing the finger and saying, I can't believe these these mobs of people. I can't believe these people burning buildings down, smashing businesses up. That's not compassion. Jesus saw the crowds and he could be honest with them. He could be truthful with them and yet full of mercy, yet having compassion for them and knowing that they needed Christ, that they needed him. Friends, do we see them with compassion? And we will want to do something if we do. But in all of our doing, let us start with prayer. Later on, uh, maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning, I'm going to send out a prayer email that is kind of highlighting different areas of, of the harvest, if you will, different needs, numbers of unreached people groups, people in prisons, things like that. And I would, I'm going to start praying specifically for some of these needs that the Lord would raise up laborers for the harvest, raise up more uh, jail ministers, raise up more um, adopting families, things like that. And I would like to invite you, church, to pray with me. So be on the lookout for that email. And if you have uh, an idea of, of a part of the harvest that we can be praying for specifically, let's start Mind you, start, we're not going to end there, but let's start by being a praying church that brings these needs before the Lord of the harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the work is beyond us. It is beyond our strength. And if it was up to us, Lord, if if it was just all on us, we would not know where to start. But Lord, you have told us where to start. You have told us to pray. Lord, help us to be a praying people and help us to be a going people. Raise up laborers from among us to bring the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.